The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are entrepreneurs and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business, then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and uh, delighted to be uh, back with you again for yet another week. And today we're going to talk about who will I be this year and lessons from a life in TV, radio, and the theater with my guest today, uh, Debbie McAndrew. And before I introduce Debbie, I'd like to say a big thank you to my guest last week, Chris Crowley, who at 80 years old, so happy birthday, Chris, if you're listening, uh, this week is living proof that you can become younger next year. There are not many authors who experience uh, selling well over a million copies for their books. And for those of you who listened to the show last week, um, I hope you got a real sense that I'm, I'm a great fan of Chris's work and uh, it's had a big impact on me. So well worth checking out that book, Younger Next Year and uh, Thinner This Year. So being on TV and radio and in the theatre is a challenging profession. And anyone out there who stands in front of audiences with their work, and perhaps you do with yours, or fears the prospect, uh, will appreciate that it requires some great skills and sometimes a really thick skin, as does choosing a career path and reinventing yourself. Today, it's a great pleasure for me to um, welcome my guest, Deborah McAndrew, a former TV star who, in her acting career, worked extensively in television, radio, and the theatre. And she's best known for her role as Angie Freeman in the iconic British television series Coronation Street, which during the 1990s. Debra's published plays include An August Bank Holiday, The Grand Gesture, A Government Inspector, published by Methuen, uh, Flamingo Land, published by Nick Hearn Books. Um, other plays include Ugly Duck, uh, Till the Cows Come Home, Beyond the Veil, Losing the Plot, King Macbeth and David Copperfield, Oliver Twist, Accidental Death of an Anarchist, Vacuum and the Bells. So a huge volume of work there. Debbie has also recently founded Claybody Theatre Company and is currently also a guest lecturer in playwriting, documentary theatre and acting at Staffordshire University Department of Drama and Theatre Arts. Now let me also share something else in that Debbie is actually also my quarter cousin. I think that's right. So I've known her longer than any of my other guests. As children we were always good friends when together and we do bear a family resemblance. Some people said we were like brother and sister. And I'll never forget the mayhem of going into Debbie's house to stay with her mum and dad and her two sisters as children. With th three theatrical and musical girls in the house, it was quite honestly completely bonkers. And her dad, John, also loved playing cricket and played to a high stand in his younger days. So a cricket bat and ball was never far away as well. So best wishes to him as well. I'm also pleased that Debbie hasn't asked me today to dress up uh, and put on a play, as I was always self-consciously cajoled into doing that when we visited. 
Uh, with Debbie, that passion for plays runs deep. Um, so I'm very um, pleased to welcome, she's sitting here with me uh, today, uh, Debbie McAndrew. Hello. <laughs> oh, you make me sound very bossy. <laughs> <laughs> not true, not true. Um, but as a, a self-conscious uh, sort of young yeah. thing, teenager, um, uh, who's not wasn't that theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologise right now. <laughs> that just sort of sticks in my mind. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so great to have you here. Thank um, you. And great fun to to do this. Who thought as young children we'd one day end up doing this together? <sighs> I never know. But mm. do you want to tell us a bit about about your background before we we sort of start and uh, and how that led to a part in you know one of the most famous sort of soap operas possibly worldwide actually yeah yeah I mean it is a big show in places like Canada and uh, Australia and in other parts of the world as well it's not just a big UK um program um well I I I suppose I always wanted to work in the theatre or in in performance or of some kind but I wasn't sure I was an actor really um so uh, I went to, to university and I studied drama there and then bottled out completely of being an actor and went and studied to be a teacher and uh, and then um, I missed it, and I was singing, and I was a singer with a jazz band for a while, and I got um, uh, an equity card, um, British equity, um, there's an American equivalent of that, yeah. um, and uh, it was a very close shop in those days, so I needed to get that, so I, I did that by singing with bands, and then uh, I got back in touch with some people I knew in the biz and said I want to come in I don't know how um, and I got introduced to an agent and the next thing I knew I had an audition for a little part in Coronation Street and it was a tiny little part it was just for three months and I think it was because they'd got a gap in the script and they needed a little something and they just a little pencil sketch of a character and she was called Angie and she'd been a student or she was a student and I'd just been a student I think I walked through the door and I just looked the part to be honest I was very young uh, and sort of looked like a student and I and I got it and after three months they renewed my contract and then after another three months they renewed it again and 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 again, and I finally ended up kind of, I was there for three years and then I left for a while and then they kept asking me to come back and I wasn't sure whether it was the right thing to do. And uh, uh, and then I went back for another spell a little bit later on in the 90s and finally kind of left again. But they were very good to me at Corrie because when I then decided uh, that I was going to work more on my writing, because I always did both, but I kept working as an actor very consistently. So I didn't necessarily have to write because that hurts and people reject your work and it oh oh and it's all very it's a big struggle so I because I was working as an actor such a lot but then when I had my daughter and I decided to kind of make the change I, I sent some stuff off to Corrie and they invited me to come in and I went as a storyliner for a block and I got a lot of experience and uh that was really great. So they, even though I kind of left twice, which I don't think you do really, that's not polite, um, they still kind of uh, were very welcoming and very supportive of me when uh, when I was kind of moving on to something different. So, so one of the things I um, listened to that, that sort of I was think, thinking about there was, you know, it must have been, you know, quite strange to be um, watching people that were, were household names and suddenly you're coming in, you're this uh, sort of young girl who's maybe you know, got a part for, for three months and you've got to relate to them. Because there's people here, I imagine, who are, are listening in who've maybe got you know, senior figures in their business who you know, maybe there's uh, you know, people on the board perhaps that they're maybe nervous about being around. I mean, how did you handle that? 
I suppose, I suppose it's slightly different because I didn't have any expectation that I was going to be there for very long. And and I sort of had nothing to lose, really. You know, I was I was just happy to be paying off my overdraft. I'd just been a student for four years. Um, and I thought, oh, great, you know, this I'm going to earn enough money here to pay off my overdraft. Um, I, I suppose I was just myself, and I think that's probably what you always need to be, really. Um, whatever whatever circumstances you find yourself in, is just going, oh, I'm, I'm okay, you know, and just kind of, be yourself. Well, that's probably the best thing, <laughs> isn't really it? It's a really hard thing to do, I know. <laughs> but actually, it's the only thing to do because yeah. it's all you've got, really. Um, and trying to second guess um, who's going to kind of, I don't know what people are going to think of you. Um, but I was, I mean, it was, it, I suppose in some ways it was very easy. I was very young. I looked even younger, I have to say. I looked about 12. Um, <laughs> and so I think probably nobody would have seen me as any kind of a, of a threat or anything like that so I just kind of drank my tea learned my lines and got on with the job yeah well that's probably a good message that just to <laughs> just to try and be yourself mm. yeah as best as best you can now I want to remember the the height of your tv career meeting you in Covent Garden in London and you had this big hat on to help yourself help uh, avoid you being recognized because at the time you're being recognized a lot and I remember it was a little bit like going to dinner with Paddington Bear um <laughs> What was it like to find yourself in the limelight and, and be recognised? Um, you know, suddenly that's a, it's a big show and a lot of people are seeing you. It must be fun being famous, but I imagine it could be tiresome as well. Oh, well, I, it, I found it very uncomfortable. I think everyone's different and uh, some people, and I've, I know a lot of people, who, are, who love it and they're great at it. And they're, you know, and that's that's terrific, you know, good for them. And I was very glad that they were there to do the newspapers and all that stuff because I only wanted to do as much as I was supposed to do by my contract. Um, I found being famous quite uncomfortable, really, and and um, I'm, I'm much happier living a more low-key life in that way. I like, I like work. I love my job. I love acting. I love writing, um, and I enjoy it. But um, – and I and – I, I've learned to live with it. I mean, it's it's nearly 25 years since I first went into Coronation Street. And so that's more than, a lot more, well, enough more than half my life. <laughs> um, and um, so I can't really remember a time when people didn't come up to me and chat to me about Corrie. Yes. Um, and that's okay. You know, it's important. What is important about being famous is to be gracious always to the people that you meet, to never be contempting of their you know, what they feel about you because um, it's, it does, you know, you do have a big impact on people's lives and when they see someone off the television in the flesh standing in front of them, it can be quite a, a, a big deal to a lot of people. So it's to, to not put that down and to be gracious about it and to be humble about it. Um, but in terms of just being recognised everywhere I went, I found it very uncomfortable. And actually, <laughs> I, my life is full of paradox, Chris. I always do, I always go up the one way street the wrong way because... I went to London to not be famous because Coronation Street set in the north of England. It's filmed in the north of England and it's very much a Manchester thing. And anywhere you go north of Watford, which is kind of just north of London, it's extremely uh, embedded in the culture and you're very famous. When you go into London, there's a real mixed bag of people there, people from all over the world. Um, there's lots of famous people live in London and even people who see famous people, they just don't bat an eyelid. They don't look at you. 
And I loved it. Suddenly I went from being extremely famous in Manchester and Leeds to being anonymous in London. Um, and whereas most people go to London to be famous, it's paved with gold and mm. they go to make their fortune in London, I went to disappear. Mm. And it was perfect. And I, after my time in Corrie in 94, I moved to London exactly because of that, because I wanted to be more anonymous. So I might have been wearing a big hat in Covent Garden, you know, perhaps the sun was hot. I don't know. <laughs> but actually, in, in, in terms of, of, of being in London, it was more, it was much more comfortable for me because I felt more anonymous mm. in that big old city. Again, again I think uh, Debbie went in. What's I, I certainly find in when I'm working with companies is that there are there are personalities in the company that uh, to the people within it are quite famous. Yes, uh, and and people feel sometimes a bit of anxiety about being around around them. And I, I think what you say there, and I I look at my my career and some of the people I've met, and some times where I've maybe had some you know quite senior roles myself, and the way people have been with me is that message there of always being gracious. I think is a really, really important one because mm. uh, you know you uh, you may not always be in that position again, and actually um, you may actually need help from people and find yourself um, as I do now. Sometimes I find I'm finding myself talking to people about business who've worked for me. Mm. They're now in companies, and yeah. so always be gracious. I think always is. be gracious, and also you don't know. You know you know for, for you it might be a routine thing that's going on but for the other person it might be a really big deal um you know in that moment they might never forget it and particularly if it's somebody who's kind of you know of a for want of a better expression a lower status it's even more important to be gracious to them because to them it's a bigger deal mm. um and then as you say one day they might be your boss you just <laughs> don't know do you um, and that's the wonderful thing about showbiz actually that that's that's very interesting and very different often to the corporate model is that if you're in a production of Romeo and Juliet for example the two youngest newest people in the cast are the most important mm. and that and showbiz is a great leveler like that and and actually it often keeps you young because as an older performer you find yourself in a company with young people where the young people are carrying it yes and that energy and that youthful energy is always very dominant and or often very dominant um and that's a that's something that we have in in our profession, which I think is good for our, I don't know, what, good for our mental health in a way. You know, it's good for us because um, you can't say, well, I'm the old guard and I'm the most senior person. I've been here the longest, except perhaps in an environment like a soap opera, which is what I was in the first place, because it is more like a regular corporate job. There were people who'd been there for decades, you know, literally mm. 50 years, 60 mm. years. Um, and, you know, there were young people coming in. So there was more of that corporate hierarchy in a soap yes. than you would get in a theatre company where you all come together on day one, you read Romeo and Juliet, and you go, okay, it's not really about the nurse, is it? Yes. You know, so I've been learn my place straight away. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's very true. So what um, I'm just interested, you know, what's life like in a soap opera? I mean, you know, what's your schedule? What's a, what's a day entail? Well, it, it sort of, I think it probably varies. You know, there are uh, the con continuing series drama, I think they call it now. I think mm. that's a borrowed from the States, actually. Um, and the, the soap form uh, um, is obviously, you know, quite international anyway, where something never, ever ends. And uh, I find them quite stressful to watch, actually, because yeah. there's never a resolution. Mm, no. I like a kind of ending. Yeah. I'm a bit kind of like that. Yeah, so, um, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know they, they they just they just roll on don't they um so it's a very particular 
experience for an actor, I think, being in a continuing series drama because you you don't know what you know what necessarily is going to come unless perhaps you're a very big, very important character and they might let you know what's going to happen to you. But um, you film it out of order. You um, uh, when I was in Corrie, which you know is is some time ago now, it's twenty years or so since I was last there. You got your scripts on a Tuesday, and you didn't know until you got them what was in them, and you would be filming them the following week. So you're filming one lot while you're learning the next lot. Um, mm. At the point at which I joined Coronation Street, they'd just gone to three episodes a week. I think they do five now, but they'd gone from two to three and everybody was throwing their hands in the air going, we'll never do it, we'll never cope. <laughs> and, and they did. And, uh, and, you know, now they do five. But they, I think the structure and the way that they do it now is quite different. They have two teams, you know, they have two directors constantly going to sets of crew and everything. And, and, and it's done in that, in that way because it's so much telly to film in a week. Um, whereas back in, back in the day when I was there, it was still one team working on three episodes. And so we filmed all the outdoor stuff on portable single camera, uh, which is a bit more like filming, um, where you have one camera and it, you take masters, then you take reverses and close-ups yeah. and all that on one camera. Um, whereas then in studio, it would be multi-camera, so there was three cameras filming simultaneously and it would be edited almost kind of as it was being filmed. Um, so um, And those scenes were filmed towards the back end of the week. The filming schedule was out. All the Rovers, the Rovers is the big pub that everyone goes to uh, to drink. Um, and... Uh, they do all those in a block. So you'd never film the scenes in order. So you never had that kind of experience. Mm. And it was quite hectic. Yes. And quite, you know. Yeah. I think what's interesting, interesting about that is, is that, you know, you, you know, you're completely by the schedule held accountable for delivering the result in the timescale, aren't you? So you've got to become highly, highly productive. You've got to deliver on the money at the moment. And sometimes you're hanging around for four hours and then suddenly you've got to do, you know, big emotional moment or big shocking thing or, or, yeah. or actually time a laugh really well because it's quite funny, Corey. Yeah. You've got to, you know, you've got to time the gags. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, on that note, we shall be back again in just a, a couple of minutes and we'll start to get into, uh, soon into, you know, some of the experiences around um, Debbie changing career and uh, some of the key kind of principles and things that um, she's sort of picked up in the theatre that might be, and playwriting that might be helpful to us as uh, entrepreneurs and business people. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. 
Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Deborah McAndrew. And we were talking before the break all about uh, Deborah's experience in Coronation Street. And... uh, you mentioned that you were in Coronation Street for seven years, and I, and also that you left a couple of times. Mm. So, and I kind of wonder, you know, you're in this huge, um, which to some people will be a you know, pinnacle of their career, and you chose to leave. And I wondered why you chose to do that, and then also to reinvent yourself as a playwright. I think um, I sort of I, I always thought about about myself as a bit of a bungee jumper. Do you know what I mean? I just kind of leap off things and, mm. I, and that's sort of how I am really um I sort of did it when I decided to go into the business in the first place I hadn't got a background in it um then I found myself in Corrie which felt like a bit of a circus to me in some ways with my personality and the background that I'd had you know with the media and and all that um and um I'd found myself caught up in contracts I, I was contracted for three months initially that was renewed and renewed again and at the end of a year I found myself offered two years which would bring me to three years. Um, and uh, I sort of have a three-year theory, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But um, so, and at the end of three years, I really needed to go. I, I, I decided to be an actor, to, to work in the theatre, which is where I thought that I felt most comfortable, that where the parts would, would be there for me to play. Um, and actually where I, I make that journey every night that I enjoy making, which is curtain goes up at half seven, you're off, you're on, you do your story, you tell your story, you share it with an audience, and then you all go to the pub. That's, I like that. Um, whereas um, with Corrie, the long days, you're in at seven in the morning, you're hanging around, you, you're sort of cosseted in this kind of rarefied world. It, I, I didn't feel like it was, I felt a bit of a square peg in a round hole. And I think some people thought that I was making a comment on Corrie because I wanted to leave as if I thought I was too good for it or something mm. like that. And that's absolutely not the case. Um, as, as I said before, I went back. A few years later, uh, a couple of years later, and then I went back again in with my kind of writer's hat on. So I think Corrie is wonderful. It's just that it's not the only thing in the world, you know. Um, and there are lots of things that I wanted to do. I was very young. I was very idealistic. I still am, and I just wanted to kind of do stuff. And um, the idea of being anything kind of doesn't really 
doesn't really register with me. I always want to do things. Um, so I bungee jumped, yeah, out of Corrie and, and we had some interesting reactions to that. And then I did it again <laughs> a couple of years later and I left again. And, uh, and then sometime after that when my um, daughter was born and I didn't want to go on tour and I knew I, I wasn't going to be a, an actor because I wanted to be at home with my baby, all the writing that I'd been doing all those years um, and not kind of focusing on came into focus. And so I, I, I switched my focus. I, quite, I suppose you've got to know yourself. Some people don't like change. They find it really hard. And, and I don't think that that's something to be, that's not a negative thing. You know, we're all different. I quite like a change. Mm. You know, I, I quite relish it. So, um, so, yes, and taking a risk again, for a program like this about entrepreneurship and business, it seems a bit of a strange thing to say that I'm not bothered about money, but I'm not bothered about money. So, you know, I really, as long as I've got enough to live on, that, which is very little, um, I'm fine, you know, I probably, I, I like nice clothes these days because I'm a bit older and you've got to wear a good cut, you know, mm. you're all right when you're 20, you can wear a bag and you look all right, but not now, yeah. I need to spend some money on my clothes. But, <laughs> you know, apart from that, you know, I, I really, it's not a motivation um, it's a nice kind of side effect when I do have a success that, you know, I've got a few quid in the bank, but that's not a, a motivating thing. I think they probably find there's a, there's a lot of people that maybe <laughs> who are listening now who, who, who could probably relate to that in the respect of, um, you know, people tend to often come out of jobs and maybe set up a business. And, and, and it's not always about money. It's often it's a, it's a lifestyle choice, yeah, yeah. you know. And uh, sometimes in a in a company you're very t- tied to it. It's a bit like imagine Coronation Street, where you're pretty much in a goldfish bowl because people are watching you yeah, all the I, time. Yeah, and I think people do get tied to a lifestyle as well. Mm. And that's very hard to give up. You know, or they get they get mortgaged up to the hill. They've got yeah. an expensive car. You know, they like their holidays or whatever. Um, and you do have to kind of let go a little bit of some of those things um, if they if they matter to you. And also, I think it's where you put your self-esteem. And that's another thing. And I think probably I've got relatively high self-esteem, I think. Not necessarily high confidence. I'm quite not very confident or haven't been a very confident person in lots of ways. But I've always sort of had quite quite high self-esteem. And I think that comes from coming from a very supportive and secure family. I think that that's where that begins, really. Um, but self-esteem and self-confidence are quite different. And and I never thought I had to be seemed to be in a fancy car in order for people to think I mattered. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You, I think sometimes people, people sh- sh- sort of surround themselves with those status symbols because they feel they have to in order to prove out that they're important, whereas... They are important, and you don't need a fancy car to be important. It's not. Mm. But, but I think if, if you are a person who, for many reasons, doesn't have such high self-esteem, that can be quite tough. Whereas I just shed all that without any problem at all, and I was driving around in this very, very battered old little car. And, you know, this very, very handsome London guy sort of stopped me one day and went, hi, you know, you, you know you're off car or whatever. And so he was talking to me. And then I got into this car and he looked at me and he went, you drive that? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm happy. I know who I am. I know why I make the choices I make and live the life I, I live. So um, in that sense, I, I think 
I'm quite fortunate, but I'm, I'm sure that's a grounding in a very secure childhood, mm. to be honest. Mm. I was, I was, it was quite interesting listening to you. I remember seeing you in Educating Rita at the, oh, yeah. the Bolton mm-hmm. Octagon yeah, yeah. or something. Uh, and yeah, Oldham, yeah. yeah old, years yeah, ago, yeah. it was Oldham, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oldham, of course. Oldham, of course, it was. Yeah. Okay, years, years ago, and uh, it was a, really a two-person show, wasn't mm. it, with a, a big audience there, and, you know, looking at you, and remember thinking how you firstly how you remembered all those lines and did it so eloquently, but you didn't look like somebody who didn't doesn't have a great degree of confidence. It's really easy. I mean, I've had some difficult times in my life when I've been very um, low or very, uh, you know, had a lot of problems and personal problems. But the the safest place to me has often been in the middle of the stage, pretending to be somebody else. Ah, I see, yeah, that. That's fine. You pretend to be someone else. You pretending to be somebody else, and that's very. Um, that's like a bolt hole for me. It's like, oh, I'm not me, for a while, just for a few hours, living someone else's life in that really heightened, imaginative way that children do when they're kids. You know, you be cowboy, I'll be Indian, whatever it is. You know, <laughs> and we're doing that, and 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 I get to do that still, um, and I get to do it even more when I'm writing my plays because I get to be everybody, which is even more immersive and. Um, and, and pleasing and I live a lot in my own head mm. which is probably not entirely good for driving but <laughs> <laughs> safely <laughs> it's quite quite interesting I, I think one of the challenges for uh, business people is probably actually to be their authentic self I mean do you get the the chance to practice that when you're in the theatre well no <laughs> but do you know what I'm quite old now <laughs> that's the thing I think when you're in your 20s you do feel a bit like a blob you don't know who you are everybody around you seems very well formed and you feel like a bit messy inside and I felt like that and uh, I think probably most young people do actually mm. they're still searching for themselves but I'm well in my 40s now and um and I've sort of and I've had a child and I've raised my, my daughter who's a teenager now so you know, you get perspective when you've got kids and when you've got a life. And um, I sort of, I'm a bit unapologetic now, but no, I like to do this my way. This is what matters to me. And I think as long as you do that, even if it all goes wrong, you know why you did it. Um, you know, that's not saying that it's good when it goes wrong, because it's not. But I think, you know, if I make a choice, as long as I make a choice knowing why, I can live with it. Yeah. Um, I think if I make a choice either to please somebody else or to get money or to achieve a status that's that's meaningless actually um uh, I, I always ask myself what what are you doing why do you want to do it and then do it with all the energy commitment and love that you can do it with and hopefully it will be all right yeah in the end well, that's a really good good message for people you know maybe sitting here thinking you know I'm stuck in something at the moment. Do I make the change? Is uh, maybe to ask that question of why? I think, and, that, and I think as well that you know we we know when we look at you know lots and lots of uh, very well known performers and actors who are apparently on the surface extremely confident and competent people, and yet inside are struggling with many demons. And Robin Williams is a perfect example yes. of someone like that. So you know we we can't always tell from looking at a performer. Because they find solace, they find a hidey hole in the performance when actually they, they're they struggling with many things that you can't see. Mm. Um, so, yeah, to say that you saw me playing Educating Rita and I looked very confident and I'm like, well, Rita was confident. Yes. 
you know. Yeah. I did a great, this is a good thing, this is, you like this. And um, I played Little Voice in a, a play called The Rise and Fall of Little Voice, mm. um, uh, which was made into a famous film. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and I played that on the stage. And Little Voice has to do lots and lots of voices. Uh, and I played this part. And you have to do Judy Garland, Shirley Bassey, uh, Piaf, all these great, and Billie Holiday, all these great, diva song songbirds i suppose um and uh, and i got the mimicry fine because we're all mimics actors anyway so that wasn't a problem but um the director said to me um uh in in rehearsals which is a really good note that i've borrowed and taken into lots and lots of different situations he said debbie these women that you're doing have got very big egos now you don't have a big ego but they do so borrow an ego <laughs> for a while and sort of it just so it just kind of I just had, I suppose it just took me to another level where I just had to pretend to be much more egotistical than I actually was um, in order to be Judy in the yes. big fabulous way Judy was and there's another one who was kind of big and fabulous on the outside and suffering terrible self doubt and 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 depression on the inside um, you know and and all the others as well um, and that's a really good thing as well sometimes not fake it to make it but just walk the walk a little bit, just, you know, mm. just kind of go, no, it's okay. I'm going to do it, and you become it. There's a thing with the Shakespeare text as well. When you speak Shakespeare, there's a lot of practice where you sort of, acting practice where you go from the inside outwards. Well, I, I feel very strongly that with Shakespeare's text, you go from the outside in. When you inhabit that text, when you speak those lines, you become King Henry. You don't think about, Henry V, what's he like? What's his motivation? What's his inner self? If you speak those words, obey the con conventions, obey the construction of the language, and you say once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, you're Henry. And Henry comes through the language to you. And, and it's about clothing yourself with those things. And, um, and I suspect that that's probably quite a useful idea or set yeah, of ideas. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think so. I think that, that principle of kind of acting as if yes uh, and uh, you know imagining if you maybe you've got a big presentation to do or something that's really daunting you is acting as if you're great at it you know yeah. act, act, if you're coaching someone act as if you're coaching if you find yourself on the tv act as if you're great at being on the tv um it, it can be really helpful can't it to get mm. you over the line and it's hard line because sometimes in trying too hard it comes over as arrogant you give a wrong impression of yourself um, and you see that as well, you know, that, that happens sometimes. And um, so it is, it's a fine line, isn't it? It's about being assured mm. rather than being, you know, overconfident. Do, and, and, do, and do you think it's worthwhile, I mean, thinking about somebody that you know who actually does it well in, a, in mm. a, an assured, confident way but isn't? Yes. You know, somebody that you can relate to. Um, yeah, rather, I, than, rather than maybe going as King Henry. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> Although Henry's good because Henry does have self doubt, and he is wonderful. Um, but I think no, I, I suspect as well. It's always maintaining an awareness of the other person because that's another lesson from acting. Is with acting, you don't just throw it out; you listen. Um, mm. And acting is as much about listening as it is about talking. So if you are in a in a um, a circumstance where you really have to fake it to make it a little bit always I think maintain a consciousness of the person in the room with you so that you're you know that you're listening to them as well and I think that probably takes the edge off the arrogant thing then because you are genuinely interested in them 
and in, in how they're receiving you and in what they're giving back to you so that it becomes a definitely a two-way street and, and there's communication happening because often sometimes when people go in and they go, they're trying to be confident, they're just putting out, putting out, putting yeah, out yeah. and it's all about, and it's a one-way street and everybody just goes, whoa, yes. that's a bit much. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, put something out and then see what's coming back at you and moderate and have that conversation and, um, and try and hold on to your confidence but also let the other person in or the other people if it's a, even if it's a big room of people we've got um you know as actors we go out in front of an audience and we have to feel out the audience what mood are they in tonight what they had for their tea you know what time is it you know was there something funny or you know before happened in um uh, my one of my favorite stories which i think is true is about michael sheen the actor michael sheen who was playing david frost in frost nixon mm, as a performance that, yeah. um in the theater and he went out and uh, they were, the audience were really peculiar and he couldn't put his finger on it but he could sense because he was as an actor not just being terribly confident and marvelous but he was actually listening to the audience he was feeling them out as he went on to see how to play how to play it that night and something really odd was going on and about 20 minutes in he spotted David Frost in the audience <laughs> and obviously everyone in the audience knew that the person they were watching being impersonated was in the room and it made them really uncomfortable and the actor could sense that yes um and so I think that's I think that probably moderates that thing when you are going out there trying to fake it to make it is to remain conscious of the other people that are with you. Oh, that's a really, yeah. really, really good point. And, yeah, something that people <laughs> sometimes get wrong. I mean, do you, do you, when you're looking at an audience, and a couple of minutes till we go to commercial break, mm -hmm. but when you're looking at an audience, I mean, do you, do you, one little technique that somebody showed me once was to look at them with peripheral vision. Do you ever do that? Do you, is that helpful? Or? Well, it really depends on the configuration because I've played a lot of my uh, acting uh, time in the theatre. It's been spent in not just in what we would call the conventional proscenium arch stage, which is where you're on a high platform and the audience are below or they're around in a gallery above you or whatever. But in the round, I've played in the round. Ah, right. And in traverse, which is like a tennis court where there's audience either side, mm. thrust, where they're on three sides of you. Um, and, you know, and in promenade, where the audience move with you through a space. So <laughs> there are many different ways of performing. Mm. And, and many different ways of an audience being there. I've got quite good eyesight. Long, I'm long sighted, so I can always see them. Um, and depending on how strong the lights are, that does help. Sometimes you can't necessarily always see the whites of their eyes, but they do give off an energy that you can pick up, even when you can't really see them. Um, and that's um, intangible, very difficult to describe, but it just is there. Yes. Um, and in the round is very interesting because the audience can also see each other which gives them great power yes. as an audience. Um, so they, you know, something happens and uh, on one side of the stage and the audience on, on the opposite can see the audience reacting to something happening and they sometimes kick off each other a little mm. bit rather than on what's happening on, on the stage. Mm. Um, and you get almost like, a, sometimes with laughs in the round, you get almost like a Mexican wave effect where, <laughs> you know, a laugh kind of travels around the space rather than it being kind of just one big war. Yes. It kind of, everybody gets it at a split second later because yeah. of the nature of comedy and the nature of timing things in Excellent. the round. So, Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going, well, we're going back to uh, commercial break again. We'll be back with you in just a couple of minutes to, uh, to find out a bit more.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called The Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Deborah McAndrew. And Deborah, you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, about ego. You, and <laughs> I, do, I do imagine that you probably met a few people with, uh, with egos in your career and had to, to deal with them, maybe mm. as a playwright or maybe even acting with them. Have you got any, any tips on how to deal with them? Um, not really now. I mean, some people might think I am. I don't know. Um, I, I think... Because I'm in a position now um, of being a writer and uh, I often work with my husband who's a director, um, not always, but in conversation with directors and uh, putting together um, companies to go on tour especially as well. We do a lot of touring. Um, we weed out the egos. They never get to us. Or if they do, they never get to us again. I think that's the thing about them is like if people are difficult, if they're undermining, if they're awkward, if they're troublemakers within a cast... You know, somebody can be a wonderful actor, but if they're a troublemaker, we won't have them. We don't want them. You know, we've got to send out 12 actors sometimes on tour for six months together. And they need to have a nice time because if they're having a rotten time, it done our show on the stage. Mm. Um, and also, you know, we just we just all want to have a pleasant life. It's not that we're, we're afraid of discomfort if it's necessary, but it's that it needn't be because... There are good people out there who are also nice people, mm. um, and nice people who are good—they're the ones we want to work with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the only way to really weed out, to, to really deal with the, with 
not always even egos. I mean, an ego is a is a peculiar thing because often a big ego can disguise all kind. It's actually a front yeah, for all yeah. kinds of problems. Um, but it's often somebody who's just you know high maintenance, demanding, wanting sort of attention on them the whole time, or um, who's or who's resistant. Um, and we're all we're all resistant to a point as actors. Some people are very free, you know. Um, uh, I, I'm reliably informed by someone who's worked with her that Kate Winslet is one of the freest actors they've ever seen. You know, she just will go anywhere in in an instant. Most of us have got little kind of little doors we don't open, mm. um, and uh, and that's okay. Um, but sometimes people have a lot of doors that are not open, and you think, oh come on, work with me here, give me something. Um, so yeah, you know, we try and just cast the right people and get a good team that are positive hardworking, and supportive and uh, that's what we're always trying to get mm. um but yeah e- ego is e- e- we all need it we all need an ego it's not a negative thing um but it's when that becomes you know overpowering i guess and, overpowering and disruptive yeah. and then that's that's not good because we don't none of us want to watch an actor that's going oh i'm terribly sorry for being here we want to see an actor who's full and you know giving us a lot um but uh what we don't want then is for when we all go home to our digs at night to have kind of backbiting and problems created yes um and a non-supportive atmosphere because that's not conducive with good work Mm. and that's um you're talking about it's only being full and Mm -hmm. i i I was just thinking about uh you know sometimes some of the interviewing that i've I've done and and maybe people here who've been to interviews is Sometimes in that situation, if I'm interviewing someone, I do expect them to be quite full and, mm. and, and come across with energy and enthusiasm for the, mm. for the, for the job. Mm. Um, so maybe we can you know, assess that in an interview process and, and also make sure we, we, we check on the ego at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think as well that some, some people are very shy, but I think that it relates to your passion. You know, I, if you're talking about something that you believe in that you love... It's amazing how shyness kind of can fall away if you're not focusing. Shyness is about yourself. And if you're not focusing on yourself but focusing on the thing that you feel good about, um, you can go away and have crippling sort of social anxiety afterwards, which I often do. You know, I'll go home and lie in bed and I'm going, oh, God, I talked too much and I was really just awful and oh, oh how awful I was. Um, but um, in the moment, I'm just really excited to be talking about the thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think generally speaking, that's probably a good thing. I think that's probably, you know, if you are, if you're interviewing someone or um, for a job or, you know, in any situation, maybe you're a supplier and you're trying to supply somebody product or service, that genuine passion for what you do mm. is so important. It's, it it make, makes a difference, I think. Mm. And, and that can be far more important. Um, you know, do we like you? Mm. Uh, can we work together? Um, if, if you've got that sort of sense, then the money, actually. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's all about relationships, isn't it? So, yeah, it is. Hey, so you, you work, um, you do quite a bit of work with your, your husband, Conrad. I do. <laughs> <laughs> mm. how, how, what's it like working with uh, your your other half? It's okay, actually. We we work together pretty well. He's a director and an actor, um, and, and I'm a writer and an actor. So we, we've got, we, we've always been, we always been actors with a kind of overview of some kind I suppose in terms of looking at a piece of work so we've always had those conversations and um, I like it when he directs my work he does 
it's not that he does as he's told because I don't tell him. I just know what he's going to do and I'm happy Mm. with that most Mm. of the time. Although I did recently redirect a play of mine that he'd originally directed because he wasn't available to direct a remount. And I was very nervous about that because I thought he's going to say, what are you doing to my play? It was my (laughs) play in the first place and he then directed it. And um, So, yeah, sometimes it can be a little tense. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now changing the subject, I, I sometimes think that we, you know, Business can people can make business too complicated, and and I'm kind of reminded with that. With a, there's a, was a quote. It was from Mark Twain. I think was about something about writing a long book because he was too lazy to write a short one. Mm. And I just wonder, in your work, is simplicity important? Essential and very difficult. Um, I think that you know, it, in acting terms, one of the hardest things to do is to change gear very quickly. But that's that's the, what you do. If you complicate an emotion, particularly with classical text, if you're dealing with um, Shakespeare, for example, it's a good example. Most people know what I mean. Um, a character like Hamlet, he changes gear in a second. One minute he's mad, the next minute he's rational, the next minute he's emotional, the next minute he's clean, the next minute he's... He, he moves very quickly. Um, and if you, like a, 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 almost like a... If you spill your emotions from one line into the next, mm. what you get is a blurry mess, mm. you know. Um, an actor, a director I work with a lot called Barry Rutter always says, a spun rainbow isn't <laughs> any good, you know. He says a spun rainbow is grey. I think actually technically and in, in physics terms, a spun rainbow is white, but we won't quibble on that. What he means is a spun rainbow isn't many colours anymore. So if you mix your colours you don't get the rainbow. Yes. So in simplicity, you go, you play blue, then you play red, then you play yellow, then you play whatever you mean. So that every, the clarity comes through and the purity of each colour, and then you get the rainbow. And, and it's the same with, with writing. You clean it down and clean it down and pare it down until you've got your colour and it's there and then it demands a lot of actors. My writing is very lean and actors, you know, do say to me, flipping it, Dave, I'm... <laughs> you know it doesn't kind of there's no sometimes you almost don't let people in because it, they have to change gear so quickly but um i think that way you you've got some fast-paced entertaining very clean um and it's the same with public speaking it's the same with anything you know what point is this sentence making is it making the same point as the next sentence is the next sentence the development of it or what you know mm-hmm. what, what what's the function um, and constantly, constantly questioning, interrogating. Uh, it's a great word they use in teledrama, I think, when they're talking about script, script writing. They talk about interrogating a script. And uh, I like that. And that's, I apply that to my script writing for the theatre, um, where I ask the question of each line, is it multitasking for me? A great thing I learned from Corey as well, the way they write is a scene must have must multi-strand. We deal with this storyline, that storyline, we get a bit of comedy and we get a, a tease for the next scene or, you know what I mean? So that uh, it, it, things are multitasking, um, but in a very clean and crisp way. Mm. Um, so a line that a character might say in, in a play uh, can't just carry information. It needs also to carry... Character, you know, a, a, a character A won't say, let's go to the shops the same way as character B would say, let's go to the shops. They, they, would, they would say the same thing, but they would say it differently. So you have a different colour um, and it's sort of applying those principles constantly and ad nauseam, really, and never, ever forgiving yourself for missing it, for missing one. Yeah, it's the thing I'm sort of, 
I'm just kind of picking up mm. from that, which I think is really helpful. Is this this concept of a spun rainbow? Mm. I, I just sort of thinking about you know, sort of saying to people, you know, is, is your message out to mm. your marketplace? Is it a mm. is it a spun rainbow? Is mm. it are, are there different messages going out there which aren't kind of coherent mm. and clear to people, and people are actually a bit confused? Mm. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about my new website at the moment, actually, you know, <laughs> making sure we don't create a spun rainbow with that. I, I, I love that. Yeah. I think that's a really... Uh... And as an actor, eliding one emotion into the next, you know, you, you've got to play that moment and be in the moment, play that moment and then play the next moment. But don't know, because you're the actor, you know the next moment's coming up. Yes. The character doesn't. Yes. So don't bleed your... your, your emotions into each other in, in, the, in the delusion that that's naturalistic. Yes. I think um, two another thing that's coming to my mind is about um, is about speaking, and mm. one thing I try and say to people if I'm helping them with their with their speaking is to move with purpose. Mm. So actually, mm. you know, only move and do a gesture if there's a reason for it. Mm. But if there isn't, don't do it at all. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of them, um, particularly when we talk about the round. <laughs> I've talked about acting in the round. Is a lot of acting in the round goes on sometimes with inexperienced actors and directors, and they feel they have to move because they've had their back to somebody. Yes. For a while, but you you've got to know. We can't just move. Because you've had your back to somebody for a while. I mean, you sort of can, really. And sometimes we go, you've had your back to somebody for too long. You've got to move. But we have to find a reason for that move. You can't just go, so just move up there on that line. No, that line's got to have the impetus behind it to get you to move. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of David Mamet, um, American playwright and screenwriter David okay. Mamet, who's written a lot about acting and writing. And uh, and he's very, very direct about the way that he approaches it. And and it is about non, not, no nonsense, you know, no nonsense. It's about truth. It's about clarity, simplicity, um, and being very direct in what you do, whether it's writing or acting or other related forms like public speaking and, and, and speech making and so on. Excellent. I've just got, a, just got another kind of minute, really, um, before I need to close. So I just, I just wonder, you know, very quickly, how you deal with criticism, because you must get critics and... Badly. <laughs> Badly. I don't like it. I feel, it, you know, I can be wrong-footed. You know, I'm just like anyone else. You know, somebody, eight people tell me I'm wonderful. One person criticises me. What am I thinking about at three in the morning? the one who criticised me, you know, and, and but uh, as I said, I think going right back to what I was saying earlier is that if then I can dig down and go, why did you do that? Why did you make that choice? As long as I know and I'm content, um, you know, because I've had to deal with a lot of people who feel sorry for me because I'm not famous anymore. And, <laughs> and, and I, you know, like the woman in the checkout of the supermarket, you know, <laughs> go, oh, are well, you not acting anymore? And you think, well, actually, I just played Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, but... You know, you've not seen that because it wasn't on the telly. Um, so, yes, it's you've got to kind of just sink back into your own knowledge of why you do what you're doing and hold on to that, I think, sometimes. And it, it can be very difficult, mm. and criticism is not easy to take. And I find, you know, reviews and stuff, and you know, ouch. <laughs> um, oh, well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to say... Um, Got no criticism for you, you from you today from me because I think you've done a, been fantastic having the opportunity to to talk with you. I think you know the things for me that uh, people may find helpful about you know changing changing career and not, not being a 
afraid of that change and asking yourself why, you know, acting as if mm. uh, and uh, not being afraid to do that, keeping communication simple so it's not a spun rainbow, mm. you know, all sorts of really great nuggets in there. So, you know, once again, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, and uh, on next week's show, uh, we have Shannon Burnett um, Gronich. And uh, Shannon is going to talk with me about employer and employee relations. So um, have a tremendous week wherever you are. And um, I hope to um, sort of join you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week. Thank you.